You're listening to Sermon Audio from First Baptist Church of Van Walsteen. For more information about First Baptist Church and our services, please visit www.fbcva.com. If you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 7. We're going to be hanging out there, the back half of chapter 7 today. Um, And I want to welcome you. If we haven't met, my name is Jace Williamson, one of the pastors here. Um, And I was encouraged by a couple of things. A couple of people said that they were going to be joining us online. So if you're joining us online, hello. One of those is my biggest fans, y'all. I have fans. My grandparents, okay? Hi, me, mom, and pops. Good to see you guys. Uh, But um, I want to welcome you. And one of the things I'm encouraged about is we are doing the exact same thing that we began the year doing. I don't know if you remember this. New Year's Day, January 1st, 2023. We were worshiping. We were singing. We were praying. We opened God's word. We heard the word preached. And we are going to close the year doing the very same thing. I don't know. That, that is just very encouraging to my soul that we get to tomorrow embark on a new year uh, and rest in the same message that we're proclaiming uh, over and over and over each week. Um, And so just thankful for that. But hey, let me pray for us really quick. I know we just prayed, but it's going to be a quick breath of prayer because we're going to read a lot of scripture today. And I I, I want our our souls to be receptive to what God is going to tell us today. Uh, And so would you pray with me? God, your word says that your word is active. It is sharp. I pray that you would pierce our souls, divide our hearts, and speak to us now through your word. In your name we pray, amen. Let me read verses 13 to 29 for us this morning. Jesus says this, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. And every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. And not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. 
and the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat on that house, but it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand, and the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat against that house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. And when Jesus had finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. One of my main parts of my job here at FBCVA is discipleship and spiritual formation. And spiritual formation, it, it may be a, a new term for you. Discipleship, probably not, but spiritual formation, maybe. But at the center of it, it's, it's essentially giving attention to how you organize your life around Jesus. And, and it's talking about the rhythms and the way of life in which you are pursuing Jesus as Lord. And every human being, and, and the reason why we use this term is, is it's pretty clear that it, it's one of my beliefs that every human being forms their life around something. Or to use the words that Jesus used, upon something. You have a foundation of your life, whether you know it or whether you don't. So take today, for example. Today is the last day of 2023. Okay, I don't know if you know that. But some of you, all right, the goal-oriented types, you got your journal ready for tomorrow, right? All right, you, you got your pen picked out. You got your reading plan. You got your diet ready for the first four weeks of the new year, right? You got all of those things picked out. And then some of you are like, hold up, that's the day? Like, the last day? All right, we got 12 hours to lose 30 pounds. Who's in? All right? Like, all right, so the, those are the things that maybe those are the two types of people that walked in this room. But for me, I have always been kind of a goal-oriented person. Okay, and I remember as a young teenager uh, when basketball was my, the, my foundation, okay, the center of my life, all right? I remember I would write out my goals for the summer on the off-season, how many shots I was going to make per day, the ball handling routine I was going to do, the workout routine. I had it all. Okay? And I remember one video that I used to watch all the time that would walk through like ball handling stuff. He would always use this phrase at the beginning of, of the video. He would always say, what kind of player do you want to become? And I'd be like, dude, Michael Jordan, duh. You know, like, here we go. Okay, just got to grow a little bit. But the truth behind all of that, right, there's these schemes that you have in the new year, the habits, the rhythms that you're thinking through. Or maybe not. You're maybe not thinking through these things. But whether implicitly or explicitly, there's two questions that you're really asking yourself. What kind of person am I? And what kind of person do I want to become? And you may not think about rhythms and habits and all those things like that, but that's really the implicit question that's being asked. And before you think that this message is going to be like, okay, here's seven tips to be a better person in the new year. Before you think that, let me just say that that's not where we're going. Because there's, deep, there's something deeply spiritual about 
those two questions on the screen. And I believe that Jesus speaks to those questions because each of us walked into the room this morning with lots of opinions about ourselves. And they could be really high opinions or really low opinions. They could be truthful or they could be really damaging. They're not just opinions about what we are, but about who we are. And if you noticed, what we just read was the end of one of the most famous sermons ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount. That extends from chapter 5 in Matthew all the way to what we read in chapter 7. And what Jesus is trying to do in the Sermon on the Mount is he's going to holistically sum up his teachings and the contents of the kingdom in which he was about to bring. If you go to the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, you'll see that he's going to go up a mountain and sit down. This is a place of authority in which he is speaking from. And what he does at the end is there's this invitation that Jesus' words, if you abide by his words, if you hear his words and put them into practice, it is the most stable foundation that you can find. But one of the most apparent things about Jesus' Sermon on the Mount and his ministry, that Jesus, he doesn't divide the world as we do. So you remember those opinions about yourself. See, we have this tendency to divide the world in good and bad. Right? Sinner and saint. Immoral and moral. And we actually kind of walk around with these categories in our heads. And I know it's, it's Family Worship Sunday, so kids, if you're listening, you do this all the time at school maybe. That you see people and you're like, oh, well, I, at least I'm a little better than that guy. And guess what? We never going to grow out of this. We see adults do this all the time as well. We kind of put people in categories. So, well, at least my marriage isn't like that. It's not great, but it's not like that. And you see, our world has this natural tendency to divide. And I think Jesus has something to say who look at themselves this year. And if you put yourselves in those categories as good as, and bad, as redeemed, or hey, I, I don't even have anything to stand on this morning. You don't know my past. I walked in here this morning because my wife or my husband told me to. There's things that I'm ashamed of back there that I know that if I brought to light, I don't think anyone would love me. There may be opinions of yourself that you put yourselves in the categories of the world, good and bad, sin or saint, moral, immoral. But Jesus doesn't divide the world like that. You see, the point of the Sermon on the Mount and really Jesus' ministry overall it's to not divide good and bad, immoral, moral. It's actually to divide the religious, those who are basing their works on righteousness, and true disciples. There is this appearance of righteousness, of discipleship, versus the inward reality that Jesus is your Lord. 
You see, this is the problem for many of us. You know, Jesus talks about this in his ministry that I didn't come for those who are physically well. I came for those who are sick. And if you don't realize you're sick, you don't need a doctor, is what Jesus is saying. And what we see is when we divide the world like the world around us does, good versus bad, sinner versus saint, when we define righteousness by the world's standards, what we will do is we will inevitably adopt the world's way of redemption. We will begin to say, we will walk into this room and go, you know what, if I could only just get my act together in this new year, if I could do more good than bad, give more than I get, pray more than I cuss, then I'm good to go. Or, or, or you may just, you, you know, you go say, hey, listen, I, you don't know what I've done. There is no way that I can ever over." come this, and I can never do good enough. Let me just say, if you're in one of those two categories here, I think Jesus is going to speak directly to you. Because if you start to say, okay, I want to move categories. I don't want to be bad. I want to be good. But then you start looking at your church attendance, your reading plan, your prayer life, your giving, your service. Let me just paraphrase uh, Martin Martin Lloyd-Jones Jr. when he says this. There is a sense in which every work you do in connection to the Christian life can put you in danger of having the appearance of a disciple with the heart of a Pharisee. Meaning it's not just about what you do. It's about what you're basing your doing upon. And so what Jesus is going to do is he's going to categorize in Matthew 7. He's going to say there's two groups of people who are doing very similar things, but for utterly different reasons and with utterly different results. And it's because the foundation is so much different. You know, what's interesting is anyone can really see the difference between the immoral and the moral. It's those categories, right? Look at those people over there. But Jesus points us to something much deeper. And if I could speak to our context here, I, I, I've lived in this area pretty much my whole life. I, I know how churched it is, okay? And I, I probably wouldn't preach this sermon in another place. But let me just say, one of the most freeing things and clarifying things for me is that you can actually reject Jesus through irreligion, meaning flat-out rejection of him through your own way, and you can actually reject Jesus through religion, of building your life upon your own works. And I, and I find, because I think I know our context, this is my bent. Is I'm going to speak to that latter half a little bit today. How do we reject Jesus through our religion? Because it's very dangerous. And I think that Jesus is going to reveal this to us. So let's look at the text. Okay? Jesus closes the Sermon on the Mount, and he begins with an invitation. These, these verses that I read is kind of the, the closing arguments for Jesus' sermon. And what he's going to say, he's like, listen, I, I taught you. Now, 
my teaching is not just to be praised. We're going to see that at the end. But it's to be practiced. It's not just to be commended, say, wow, that was a really good sermon. But it's meant to be conformed to, to follow him. And in the text we read, he's going to cover these two ways of life, two choices. So we see two gates. We see two prophets. We see two trees. We see two doers. And we see two houses. This is the way, these binary things that Jesus is putting forth for us. And I want you to notice the first invitation. Enter by the narrow gate. You know, what's very interesting is uh, the, you know, when, uh, this, this image in our mind is a narrow road, <laughs> right? But when we think about narrow, the straight and narrow, we're thinking about a road. But Jesus actually says, enter by the narrow gate. And so when you think, when you see this, simply put, this is the call to follow Jesus, to make a distinction between living for the world and yourself and living for Jesus. And one commentator said that, I've never heard this before, and I thought this was really good. Talked about how entering the narrow gate brings this picture of something that's really hard to fit through, something that's really tight. Okay, I don't know if you uh, want to have an anxiety attack, but if you go on YouTube and you, t- you, you look at these cave divers that squeeze through these tight things, don't watch it. It's terrible. But this is what this idea is. is they're squeezing through this narrow passage. And you know that these guys, when they squeeze through this narrow passage, the only thing that they have upon them outside of a GoPro is the clothes on their back. They have no space to bring anything else. Now think about what Jesus is saying here. Enter by the narrow gate. He's saying that the broad gate is wide. It's easy. You can bring your opinions about the way of life. You can bring other thoughts of going, you know what? This is the way to God. But the narrow way strips you of all that. It strips you of the way you think the world works. You think it strips you of what I think Jesus is saying, your own righteousness. There is no room. And this is the call to follow, that the road is reserved for those who say there is one way here. And you know, as we've been going through the Gospel of John, Jesus explicitly says that what? I am the gate. It is one way through. But here's what the religious can't say. The religious cannot say that. Because what do you notice about the religious that Jesus brings to us? The religious only has the appearance of a disciple. You see, the religious start with the outside and they go in. And what, what I mean by religious in this sense is the moralist. It's to say, hey, I put my good on the table, and this is how I measure my righteousness. This is how I know that I'm saved, because A, B, C. And if you walk through the Sermon on the Mount, you're going to notice that Jesus is not speaking about people who are not doing the right things, but rather he's speaking to those who are doing the right things for the wrong reasons. Think about this for just a second. 
Have you noticed, if you walk through the Sermon on the Mount, that Jesus is not saying, hey guys, you are going the wrong way. You don't even pray. No, 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 no. He's saying, you are praying, but you're not doing it the way that you're designed to pray. Hey, you're giving, but you're not, you're not doing it for the right motives. Hey, you're fasting, but you're not doing it for my glory. You see, Jesus is always poking holes. He's going behind to the motive. And this is how we can actually reject God through religion. Because religion says, my works earn your love. You see, the wide and the easy way that leads to destruction is precisely what Jesus has been describing all along. It's not just this idea of rejecting the sin out there. This tangible thing of sexual morality and greed. It's the deception of the heart that goes, you know what? I, I, I may not be committing adultery, but I do lust. This is the motive of the heart. And the narrow, this difficult way is the vision that he's cast for righteousness that's deeper than behavior. Because I want you to notice this. Notice this in the two prophets, Right? If the two roads kind of separate the true disciples from the world, there's this warning to watch out. Hey, watch out for false prophets who look like sheep, who look like they're pointing to the the straight and narrow, but they actually are pulling you to the wide side. He says this, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Notice two things about the false prophets. Not rocket science. They have the appearance of a sheep. They're going to put on the clothing of someone that looks like a child of God, a disciple. But inwardly, it says, what? They're ravenous wolves. What's interesting about this term, ravenous wolf, is it describes really a thief, a swindler, if you will. A good way of thinking about this is a con man. It's a person that looks all put together, looks like they have all the truth in the world, probably very confident in themselves, but what they're doing is they're manipulating you into false belief. And here's how Jesus said it. Jesus said, to the scribes and the, and, the, and the Pharisees, woe to you. Woe to you. you. You clean the outside of the cup. It's really clean out there. But inside, you are full of greed. Think about this. You place heavy burdens. This is what Jesus, this is not my words, this is Jesus. You place heavy burdens upon your people that you yourself cannot bear. You're like whitewashed tombs, Jesus says. Outwardly beautiful, but full of dead people's bones inside. What's he describing? The appearance of something very beautiful on the outside, but completely rotten on the inside. Now, like for me, my whole life, pretty much, false prophets have been one thing. Rich preachers that have a private jet. Okay? Now, I, I'm not saying that they are not. 
But I also think that there is a deceitful way of false prophecy in the church that looks a lot more ordinary. A lot more ordinary. Because the false prophet here, I believe, strives to cut the legs off of the gospel. And what I mean by that is that the false prophet, as we're going to see in just a moment, could be very orthodox, meaning Lord, Lord, right? They could be teaching, quote-unquote, sound doctrine. They could be saying things that sound really good and biblical, but one of the ways that I believe we're swindled into it is that we have very sound doctrine over here, but absolutely no care and compassion for our neighbor. And I think if, if you swing to any of those sides, there's a false prophet in your midst to say, listen, do I, am I saying that sound doctrine doesn't matter? Absolutely not. But if I know my context as a leader of this church, there's probably a tendency to know our doctrine, to read our Bibles. But the love of neighbor, that might come second. And here's what I believe. The greatest danger that a false prophet brings isn't necessarily persecution. It's deception. It's deceiving. You see, the the way Paul would say it, and I think he's speaking to us, is in 1 Corinthians 13, 1 to 3. This is from the NLT version. He says, if I could speak all the languages of earth and of angels but didn't love others, I would only be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I had the gift of prophecy and if I understood all of God's secret plans and possessed all knowledge, and if I had such faith that I could move the mountains but didn't love others, I would be nothing. If I gave everything I have to the poor and even sacrificed my body, I could boast about it. But if I didn't love others, I would have gained nothing. Listen, that is a resume that would look great on any Christian site. I know my theology. I give to the poor. But if I do not have love. And this is the fruit. When we talk about this fruit that, that Jesus brings up, he, he's talking about two trees, right? But both of these trees look alike. Again, it's pointing to the appearance. It's not the final judge. But these trees look the same, but the fruit, one is poisonous and one is whole. And the fruit is the product, right? It, it's this idea of, of what your faith is producing. And here, I believe that we, we kind of look at verses 21 to 23, and we kind of pull that out and just read this. But I think he's going to talk about what fruit, the fruit of the religious speak of here. When we talk about what religion produces, so put a pin on the fruit for just a second, because he's going to say this. He's going to say, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father. He's going to say that 
in verse 22. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I think one of the things that we miss about this text, this little piece, is that there's nowhere in the Sermon on the Mount, or the teaching of Jesus, that it says that it is the will of God that you must do many mighty, many mighty things in the name of Jesus. Nowhere is go make a big splash, and the bigger splash you make, that's the basis of your righteousness. You see, what we see is we have the right belief. Lord, Lord, that's orthodox. That's calling Jesus Lord. We have Christian ministry, casting out of demons. We have teaching. We have all of these things that would put, if you put it all in a, in a bucket, you'd be like, yep, this is what it means to be a Christian. But what Jesus is saying is you can do all of these things and miss the point. Frederick Bruner says it this way, we learn at least that it is possible to work for Jesus and yet not live under him. You see, the foundation of religion is external works. It's doing in the name of Jesus. But you miss the simple life-altering way that the simple acts of living for Jesus. You see, when, you, when it says do the will of the Father, do you know what he's saying here? We've seen it. Jesus teaches it. The, the way he opens the Sermon on the Mount is what? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the, those who mourn. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. These are people that see their need and see their desperate, desperate need for mercy. And so what we understand is that this fruit is a lot more like what Jesus describes, small, simple ways of loving him. What do we see in the Sermon on the Mount? We see him saying, revere scripture. We see him love your spouse. Hey, you know what? Forgive your enemy. Pray in secret. Give generously. These are simple ways of loving Jesus. But here's what I fear. I fear that you're going to hear the things that Jesus says, hey, do, 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 and you're going to miss it. Because we have this tendency to just take it and go. Because the foundation that we see as we end is one built on Christ. We come to this last pair, these two houses. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Notice, two houses, equal in appearance, two different results. And what we've seen so far is that the difference between religion and Christ followers is that something else besides Jesus is holding them up. And that's what Jesus is trying to get under in the Sermon on the Mount. That he's saying, listen, if you hear me, listen to my voice. Hear these words of mine. 
And Christ is bringing us to the top of his teaching. And he's saying, listen, build your life on it. Isn't it so awesome to know that as, as you end in, in verses 28 and 29, is that we're not building our lives on a philosophy. We're not building our lives on something that says, you know what, this is my philosophy of life. It says that he had authority. We're building our lives upon a person. And when we build our lives upon a person that came to us, that lived the life that we should have, died the death that we, that was headed for us, that was perfectly righteous and resurrected to say, you know what, death doesn't have final say, you're mine now. That is a totally new way of life. And what we're do is we're set free to go, you know what, I know what's been done for me. I know that my works mean nothing, but I'm free to do good works. But my foundation is one of Jesus and his righteousness. And this means, that we go back to it, is what kind of person Am I going to become this year? Listen, you're going to build a house this year, spiritually, okay? I can't afford to build a house in Austin, but spiritually, you're going to build a house. And what that foundation is going to be is either my own works, my own doing, or Jesus Christ himself to say, listen, Jesus, sustain me. Help me love you. Help me love people. Notice that this way of life is not going to spare you from the flood and the rain and the storm. But when inevitably the storm and the rain and the flood comes, your foundation is secure. Listen, 2023 in the life of this church and my own life was pretty hard. It was a rough year. For many of us. But here's what I know. The truth is that when the storm and the rain and the flood comes, it often reveals the cracks in our foundation. It reveals other places in which are sandy. I don't know if you've ever had that spiritual time where everything's just wiped. Where you go, well, I got nothing left. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to say. I don't know what to pray. But this is what Jesus is pointing to. You know, maybe some of you have gone through foundation repairs at your home. (laughs) And you know the importance of a foundation. And you know the expense of a foundation. Listen, how much more important and expensive the spiritual foundation is in your life. So we ask this question, what does it mean to build a foundation upon Jesus? I want you to think about the Apostle Paul. Philippians 3. I don't have time to read it all. But he says this, whatever gain I had, I count it all as loss. He's not discounting the things. He's saying those things actually give me no advantage. And they actually maybe hinder me from seeing the true foundation, the true righteousness that's been given to me in Jesus. And that means until I see I'm inadequate, until I know I need a doctor, until I know I, I've been realized, I realize I've been saved, 
by grace alone, then I have built my house upon something else. Building the foundation upon Jesus on the rock is grasping at the grace of God. And people who continue to say, Lord, Lord, did I not? Did I not? They're building a house upon sand. And do you see how this is not just about doing more and being more in 2024? That's not what this is about. The question is, how are you organizing your life around hearing the words of Jesus? How, how Are you so busy that you can't hear him? Because notice the end of this teaching. The people went away astonished. That's not just a little bridge to get you to chapter 8 in which he starts healing people. This is important to know. Because this word astonished literally means they almost lost their mental capacity to think. The way the kids would say it, that just blew my mind. Literally. It blew my mind. But here's what I need to understand. These people heard the words of Jesus. They were astonished by his teaching. But what did they do with it? What, 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 did, they just, did Jesus just blow their mind and now they're back to their own way? You see, many of us look for this mind-blowing sermon, this mind-blowing book, this mind-blowing truth or word. When the person of Jesus is standing right before you saying, listen, my, le- my life, my death, my resurrection is enough. Build your foundation. Build your house upon that foundation. It cuts through the noise. You are no longer this person with an opinion of yourself that you're too far gone. You are no longer this person that's building your life upon your own righteousness. One of my favorite quotes is from this illiterate farmer that got saved through the preaching of George Whitfield. He said this, his preaching gave me a heart wound. And by God's grace, my old foundation was broken up and I saw that my righteousness could not save me. Has the gospel done that for you? Has Jesus' life said, listen, my foundation, my old foundation's dug up and now I have a secure one. That's for you, for those who claim they're in Christ, for those who claim that they're not. What the gospel does is it elevates those who are down here saying, I'm not enough. Yes, you are. My death, resurrection is for you. But it also brings low those who go, listen, I am enough. Look, Look at all of I've done. No, no, no. Don't you know you're saved by grace? Listen, as we close, we're, we're going to do the Lord's Supper today, just to let you know, so you can prepare for that in just a moment. But one of the m- most interesting things to think about when closing a sermon is, is, I mean, your conclusion, right? And Jesus actually closes his teachings in three different ways. He either gives a warning, he either asks a question, or he gives a practical point. And it's funny, when you start talking about conclusions, people kind of start wiggling in their seats, and they're thinking about, hey, what's next? And oftentimes, in our response time, maybe there's this point where you, you kind of check out. But, but let me ask you a question. What are you building your life upon? What is something that was, if it was taken away this afternoon, you would say, I, I can't go on. If you ask yourself that question, that's probably 
getting very close to the thing that you're building your life upon. And really, 2024, and you know, moving into new year, this is always a time for me to examine my own life. And I'm going to give you a tool to do that as we end here today. And it's called the prayer of relinquishment. You know, oftentimes through our lives, my will, my works, my morality, my control, my desires creep in. I'm a, I'm a, I claim to be a pastor, okay? But there's these days where I'm like, nope, my will. My will be done. And the prayer of relinquishment is really a, t- a, a way of battling that. It's this battle that says, my will or thy will. And really, it's, it's born out of the Gethsemane moment in which Jesus is about to go to the cross. And if you read that, I, sh- I should have written the, re- uh, the, uh, the chapter down. It's towards the end, Matthew 25-ish, okay? But he's going to go, and he's going to be praying. And he's, there's this moment in which he wrestles with his will and the Father's will. And he goes back to his disciples. He goes, hey, wake up. Y'all aren't praying for me. I'm going to go back. I'm going to pray. I'm going to wrestle. And I'm going to go back to my disciples. My disciples are still sleeping. Okay, I'm going to go back. I'm going to pray. I'm going to wrestle. And he finally goes, you know what? Your will be done, God. And the prayer of relinquishment is a way of doing this. And I'm going to give you this tool. I'm going to walk you through it very quickly. But I would encourage you, if you're a Christ follower, to do this. This could be done in 30 minutes. Or as I do it on a quarterly basis, it's a half a day. But there's, there's a way of doing this, and I'm going to walk you through it, and I would love for you to get into a posture of prayer right now. This is not just intellectual right now. Because the prayer of relinquishment is this. Eventually, this relinquishment is going to end with crucifixion of the will. But Richard, Fo- Richard Foster says this. Where there is a crucifixion of the will, there is a resurrection tied to it. Oh, it's beautiful. So I want you to think about this. What this is, is is a way to reveal the foundation. What am I holding on to? What is hindering me from building upon Jesus, from fully trusting in him? And this begins by coming to Jesus in this self-emptying way. It's emptying yourself of the religious man, as I would say. It is to meditate upon the self-emptying Christ. It is to get yourself out of the way. I go to Philippians 2 here, and I read about how Jesus emptied himself and took the form of a servant. It is to meditate upon that. And then when you realize who Jesus is, you go to this prayer of surrender. And this is what I spoke about, that you go to the account of Gethsemane, that it's a fight. If it is possible I don't want this, Father. But it always ends with this white flag going, not my will, but yours. And when you get to the point in your soul, in your being, where you can say, not my will, but yours, you can go to the Father with pure abandonment. Oh, what are we abandoning? Well, yourself, 
your control, your desires. And, and here's where you get really specific. Maybe it's anger, and I am putting anger right at the feet of Jesus, and I'm saying, I'm abandoning this to you. Maybe it's some dreams that I have that the Father is really not coming through for me right now. Maybe it's this suffering that I can't get through. It's always suffering. Maybe it's grief, and I'm saying, Father, I'm abandoning myself to you. And then there's this release where you're lifting up these things. Where I'm, I'm literally opening my hands and saying, I, I lift into your arms my children, my spouse, my friends. I put my future in your hands. I put my hopes in your hands. I put my dreams in your hands. But it's not just about you. Maybe it's the enemies that you're holding so, so close. Maybe it's the angers. Maybe it's the desire for retaliation. All of these things, you're giving into the hands of the Father and you're turning around and walking away. This is this release. And he will care for it as he sees fit. But this is, this is where the gospel is so pure because there is a resurrection when we're crucified to the self that he's going to bring back to life what he pleases. And some things are going to remain dead. But some of you need to use this prayer of relinquishment and get to the bottom. Get to the bottom of what you're building your life upon. Take a day. Take an hour. But I invite you to heed the words of Jesus. Be a wise man. Be founded upon the rock. Father, we ask you as we move through a time of the Lord's Supper that we would be reminded the physical reminder of your death and resurrection. And just as we have seen and prayed for that we know that this gift is given to us by pure grace, there is no one in this room that earned the meal, but they're freely given it through your blood your sacrifice. So Father, help us. Spirit, search our hearts. We ask these things in your holy name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from First Baptist Church of Van Alstine. For more information about our church, visit www.fbcva.com.